the joy of Welcome back, dear listener, to the joy of serious literature. I'm grateful to have you. Together we are going to get to the bottom of what makes literature awesome, or else die trying, like that rapper who is now bankrupt. In this episode, the second episode of The Joy of Serious Literature, we're going to be talking about the novel The Vegetarian by the Korean writer Han Kang. It just so happens that Korea is one of the few places on earth outside of my native village that I happen to be pretty familiar with. I spent about a month there back in 2012, visiting some college friends, and found myself really fascinated by that small, thriving country. How did they get so rich? Why do they like Applebee's so much? Why do they insist on having a Dunkin' Donuts on every block? And so when I heard that the Korean Hong Kong was given the most recent Man Booker Prize, my ears immediately perked up. Who was this woman? What was her writing like? How did a Korean win a prize that's supposed to go only to British people? Well, first and foremost, she didn't. I bring this up because I said in my pitch for this episode that Hong Kong had won the Man Booker Prize. Turns out she actually only won the Man Booker International Prize, which is an entirely different literary award, though it's given by the same foundation and comes with the same hefty prize money. While the Man Booker is given out to the best novel written in the English language during a given year, the Man Booker International is given to the best work translated into English in a given year. Whoops. If you've never heard of Hong Kong, there's no reason to feel ashamed. Hong Kong was picked to win this award out of almost complete obscurity, even within Korean literature itself. As part of my research for this episode, I spent a lot of time talking to a translator of Korean literature named Kim Hee Mong, who's currently a Fulbright scholar at the local Catholic university, and who happens to think of Hong Kong as one of her favorite writers. And what Hee Mong will tell you is that up until Hong Kong won this award, hardly anyone in Korea gave a damn about Hong Kong as a writer. For example, before she came to the USA, Himong was a graduate student studying translation at a Korean university. And she said that in her class of aspiring translators, of pretty literary people, only her and her professor had heard of Hong Kong, and she was the only one who had actually read any of Hong Kong's work previous to her winning this award. Though Himong says, now that Hong Kong is this big international award winner, everyone will tell you that they've always adored her work. Once you actually read The Vegetarian, though, you can see why it didn't exactly sell a million copies in the Republic of Korea. Most of these big literary prizes are chosen by committees, and committees by their very nature are institutions beholden to certain literary, social, and political norms. Which means the winners of these prizes, the Pulitzer, the Man Booker, the National Book Award, are somewhat bland affairs. Immaculately constructed, enjoyable, delightful, heartbreakingly tragic, but innocuous. This is part of what makes the vegetarian winning such a prestigious award so astounding. The Vegetarian is the least innocuous novel I have read in a very long time. The Vegetarian is a caustic sledgehammer to the face. On the surface, The Vegetarian is about a young woman named Inhi who decides to become a vegetarian. About as simple a plot as you can imagine. A stranger comes to town and that stranger is the refusal of one woman in one Korean family to eat meat. But the novel isn't about her coming to the decision not to eat meat. This isn't Jonathan Saffron Foyer's On Eating Animals, where someone lectures at you for 300 pages about why you shouldn't eat animals. The novel doesn't really care at all about adorable animals being slaughtered in mechanized death machines so that we can eat sandwiches. This is a novel about what that one woman in that one family making this one particular decision does to the people around her, namely ruin their lives. The Vegetarian is divided into three sections, 
each of which was originally published by Hong Kong as a short story in the mid-2000s. Each of these sections, then, is told from a different perspective. And together through these three perspectives, we get pretty much the full arc of Inhi's misadventure, as it were, in vegetarianism. Her husband takes us from point A to point G, her sister's husband takes us from point H to point P, and then her sister gets us from Q all the way down to just about Z. Let's begin with the first section, entitled The Vegetarian. As I said, this section is told from the perspective of Inhi's husband. Not only is it told from his perspective, he actually narrates the opening section. This is notable because the other two sections, though their perspective is clear, are not narrated by their central character. It's all third person. Only the husband speaks directly to us as readers. What he talks to us about, of course, is his damn wife and her damn vegetarianism. In his husband is my favorite character in the entire novel, because he is perhaps the most aggressively bland character ever put to page. I'm going to read for you the first two paragraphs of his narration because I think they perfectly capture the sort of man we're dealing with here, and in a certain way, the way the world of the novel conceived of Inhi before her change. Before my wife turned vegetarian, I'd always thought of her as completely unremarkable in every way. To be frank, the first time I met her, I wasn't even attracted to her. Middling height, bobbed hair neither long nor short, jaundiced, sickly-looking skin, somewhat prominent cheekbones, her timid, sallow aspect told me all I needed to know. As she came up to the table where I was waiting, I couldn't help but notice her shoes, the plainest black shoes imaginable, and that walk of hers, neither fast nor slow, neither striding nor mincing. However, if there weren't any special attraction, nor did any particular drawbacks present themselves, and there was no reason for the two of us not to get married, the passive personality of this woman in whom I could detect neither freshness nor charm, nor anything especially refined, suited me down to the ground. There was no need to affect intellectual leanings in order to win her over, or to worry that she might be comparing me to the preening men whose pose in the fashion catalogues, and she didn't get worked up if I happened to be late for one of our meetings. The paunch that started appearing in my mid-twenties, my skinny legs and forearms that steadfastly refused to bulk up in spite of my best efforts, the inferiority complex I used to have about the size of my penis. I could rest assured I wouldn't have to fret about any such things on her account. Now, as you might guess from listening to that, Inhi's husband's narration is pretty hilarious. He's so forcefully bland, so fascistically normal, so unflinchingly uninterested in any sort of individuality in a wife, that he can't help but feel not like a human being, but like a caricature of a human being. All through his section, I found the things he said to be so perfectly and wonderfully sexist, or misogynistic, or materialistic, that I kept bursting out into laughter. But is he really a parody? One of the first questions I asked Himam is how outlandish is Inhi's husband in a, to a Korean reader? And her answer was that he wasn't outlandish at all. In fact, she felt he was the least bizarre, the most normal character in the entire novel. Korean society is rapidly changing, but still a very conservative society, with very conservative ideas about gender relations. There are still a great many people there for whom women are still a kind of property, and where marriage is conceived of as more of a way to hire a suitable housekeeper and child-rearer than any sort of means to self-actualization via the miracle of love. So what Himong will tell you is that this man's way of thinking about his wife and her actions is exactly the way that millions of Korean men think about their wives. I need to get married. This one will do. I hope she doesn't try to talk too much while I'm watching TV. And from the way the husband describes her, Inhi totally fulfilled all of his wildest dreams of her being utterly boring. 
She had no quirks. She had no opinions. She cooked well. She didn't make demands. She didn't complain when he would stay out late working or broke off plans with her to go out drinking with his co-workers or just sat around generally not caring whether his wife was alive. She just existed, like a plant, until she stopped. Inhi hardly ever speaks during the entire course of the novel. Her dialogue lines are few and far between, and even when they do happen, they almost never consist of more than a dozen words. Even though she's the driving force behind everything that happens in the novel, there's a way in which she's never really allowed center stage, even within her own story. It's all about the thoughts of the people around her and in reaction to her, but not within her. Because of this, it's hard to know why she does anything. Why did she become a vegetarian? The only explanation we get from her is that she had a dream. And what that dream consists of is unclear because no one ever gives her enough credence to actually listen to her about it. It's just this dream. Because of that dream, though, her husband comes home one day and finds Inhi standing in the kitchen with the freezer open, throwing what her husband describes as hundreds of dollars worth of meat products into the garbage. And this conversion, of course, completely ruins his life. He likes to eat meat. The only thing he really liked about his wife was that she was good at cooking meat. What kind of person doesn't like to eat meat? What kind of wife would dare to let her dietary preferences inconvenience her husband? What kind of wife won't resume eating meat when her husband tells her to stop being a vegetarian? It's all just the worst thing that could possibly ever happen to a wonderful, loving husband like him. To illustrate the way in which he's been martyred by his wife's vegetarianism, the husband describes for us this really marvelous scene where he has to take her to dinner with his boss and his boss's wife and all the other company bigwigs. At this dinner, the waiter brings out course after course of meat-based food, and everyone dives into it, stuffing their faces, gnawing the flesh, letting the juices dribble down their chin. But in he, of course, eats nothing, and everyone eventually notices she's eating nothing. Well, she explains, I don't eat meat. Don't eat meat, everyone says. I could never possibly not eat meat. Meat is delicious. How could you possibly get enough protein? Is this some sort of religious thing? If my wife tried to stop eating meat, I'd forbid it right then and there and be done with it. They lecture her and lecture her and lecture her to the point where her husband is basically dying of humiliation. His career is over, his job he thinks is over, his life he thinks might as well be over, and all because of his stupid wife. And, as ever in this book, Inhi is given almost no space to justify herself. Really, the only moment where she gets to respond at all is when, I think it's the boss's wife, asks her if she's become a vegetarian because she's converted to some sort of ultra-fundamentalist form of Buddhism. No, says Inhi. I had a dream. At which point her husband pretty much leaps on her like she were a hand grenade to keep her from telling anyone about her dream. Because who cares about why you became a vegetarian? All that matters is that you're a freak! In the aftermath of this dinner party disaster, Inhi continues to refuse to eat meat. The humiliation she heaps upon her long-suffering husband makes no dent in her resolve whatsoever, and the husband sort of reconciles himself to the fact that he's never going to get to eat meat again at home. But after a while, it starts to become apparent that her refusal to eat meat is starting to make her lose a lot of weight. All she's eating is like the Korean equivalent of lentil soup, and that'll take its toll on your caloric intake. Month by month, she gets thinner and thinner. Her ribs start to poke through. Her breasts, her husband informs us, shrink down to nothing. This finally sparks him into taking serious action. Instead of just whining about his wife's insolent insistence on being able to make a decision about her life, he gets a hold of her family and demands they intervene. Korea is a country where a lot of people still think of marriages as a sort of business transaction. 
the daughters are a product with a warranty on them, much like a vacuum cleaner. That her husband would be dissatisfied with her infuriates in He's family. They yell at her on the phone. They demand she obey her husband. They gnash their teeth and rend their clothes about how she's disgracing them. And when all of that fails, they demand the chance to confront her so they can presumably fix her. What they do is have a big dinner party at Inhee's sister's apartment, with Inhee and her husband and her sister's husband and the whole rest of the family. And they cook all the meat in the world, all the best Korean meat delicacies, all of the dishes Inhee used to love when she was a meat eater, and sit them in front of her and insist she eat them. But she doesn't. She refuses. And continues to refuse, until her father, who is described by the novel as frequently gloating about the number of communists he killed during Korea's brief and bloody involvement in the Vietnam War, so you know he's not a man of passive temperament, becomes so enraged with her that he picks up a piece of meat with his chopsticks and tries to jam it into Inhee's mouth. This scene is the most horrifying in the novel. He grabs her by the jaw, he's grinding the meat against her teeth, he's trying to force her mouth open, he's screaming at her, he hits her, and everyone is just standing around doing nothing, watching, maybe offering the most pathetic, please, no, that's too much requests imaginable. It's a nightmare to imagine and a nightmare to read, but it also bears some explanation. I asked Himong about this scene. How outlandish is this father's behavior? And the answer she gave me really blew my mind, because she said it wasn't really outlandish at all. Korean families, particularly of the preceding generation, are really patriarchal. The father is in charge. The father's authority is absolute. So she said that if some friend of hers were to come up to her and describe this scene happening to them, she said she would commiserate with them, sympathize with them, tell them how what their father did was excessive and that he was wrong and a jerk, but that's all she would do. She wouldn't be shocked. She wouldn't call the cops. Forcibly jamming meat into your daughter's mouth while she begs you to stop is a thing to be frowned at, but only frowned at. Think about that. Behavior is a spectrum of permission. Here are the range of things that you are allowed to do within this society. That which exists outside this spectrum, that's the abhorrent. That's what has to be punished or stopped or imprisoned or whatever. That spectrum varies from age to age and from society to society. But what we have here in The Vegetarian is a spectrum where a woman being such a complete and utter lunatic as to become a vegetarian, as to make a decision about her life and her body and what she wants for it, is utterly fucking impermissible. And yet a man gets to grab his daughter and hold her down and shove unwanted meat product into her mouth by force, by violence, and that, that's permissible. On the edge of permissible, in the disapproving frown zone, but permissible. Eventually, the father succeeds and gets some meat between her teeth, which in he holds in her mouth just long enough for her father's arm to grow tired, at which point she spits it back up, wriggles out of his arms, and then runs into the kitchen where she grabs a paring knife and jams it into her wrist, her blood squirting out, the novel says, in ribbons. The Vegetarian is a monstrous novel, quite clearly, but it's not a melodramatic novel. She lives. They bundle her up, rush her to the hospital, and get her stitched up before she runs out of blood. But the damage is done. Something has snapped in Inhee. When her husband visits her at the hospital a short time later, he discovers that she's escaped from her room, found a small bird, and crushed it in her hand. Have I done something wrong? She asks him. The first section of The Vegetarian is one of the most morally apocalyptic things I've ever read. In its black humor, in its misogyny, in its spiritual and literal violence, it assaults you with an intensity and a viciousness that only a couple things I have ever read can equal. 
It's right up there on the pantheon of literary battery, with works like Yukio Mishima's The Sailor Who Fell From Grace With The Sea, where a group of kids bash out the brains of kittens to prove that they're beyond morality, or that Borges story, where the farmer tries to teach his tenants about Christianity and they end up crucifying him. But that's not where the novel ends. We're only one-third of the way through. The novel's subsequent two sections are somewhat more subdued. The novel has, in a certain sense, its dramatic climax, at least in terms of Inhi, in the first third, and then the rest of the book serves as sort of long, trailing denouement. A denouement with plots of its own and climax of its own, and some truly dramatic moments. But the novel never again reaches the same fever pitch of the first section's final pages. And that's fine. That's good. Hong Kong has made that point. Now she moves on to make other points. The second section is told from the perspective of Inhi's sister's husband, and it picks up a couple years after the meat-stuffing catastrophe. Inhi is out of the hospital, and now she's living alone in an apartment rented by her sister because her husband, unable to cope with the immense embarrassment of her actions, has flat-out divorced her. There's actually a really great speech that Inhi's husband is described as giving in the early pages of the section, where he argues that anyone with any sense has to acknowledge that he was the true victim of all of this. What an ass. Anyway, what sets off the plot is Inhi's sister mentioning, in passing, to her husband that Inhi has what's called a Mongolian mark, a small blue birthmark on her butt. This sets off in Inhi's sister's husband's mind an obsessive idea that the small blue birthmark isn't just a birthmark, but the petal of a flower. You see, while Inhi's husband was a corporate hack, Inhi's sister's husband is an artistic hack. He's a video artist who makes, even by the novel's own admission, Really boring, overly sincere political art that no one cares about. Black and white photos of poor people looking dour, strung together with bits of license-free classical music. Which is fine for him, because Inhi's sister is the proprietor of a very successful cosmetics store. He gets all the money he needs from her in exchange for him being a completely worthless husband. He spends almost no time with his wife or their son. He blatantly ignores his responsibilities to them, so that he can hang out in the studio he rents with a number of other artists working on his video projects. His imagining this Mongolian mark, however, gives him, we're going to call him the artist, two things. The first erection he's had in years, and what seems to be the first real artistic idea he's ever had. What the artist wants to do, what he becomes obsessed with doing, is painting in his body with flowers and then filming her. And so the action of the Mongolian mark section becomes mostly about convincing Inhi to participate in this art project, to come to his studio, strip off her clothes, let him paint her with flowers, and then stand there while he runs his video camera. As he goes about this, though, it becomes clear that Inhi's mental health has not recovered from the trauma of the meat-stuffing incident, nor her resultant suicide attempt. She's not a blubbering fool or deranged or anything, but she's even less there than she was before. Her mind has retreated in on itself. Though she moves about, walks, eats, occasionally says things, there's a lack of responsiveness to her that's really chilling, like she's been hollowed out, like she's become a shell of a human being. But hey, so what? As my grandma used to say, if she ain't actively resisting, then she's acquiescing. And in he is actually acquiescing, it seems. She shows up at the studio, she lets him paint her, she goes through all the filming, and then, when the filming is done, she asks the artist if the flowers will come off in the shower. I wouldn't have thought it'd come off too easily. You'll have to wash it a few times, too. She interrupted him. I don't want it to come off. The flowers, she eventually explains to him, are making the dreams go away. 
And so when the artist asks her to return to the studio the next day so he can move on to phase two of his art project, where he wants to film both her painted body and the painted body of one of his male studio colleagues, she readily agrees. The second phase turns out to go even better than the first. He gets all sorts of awesome footage, both in he and his colleague get really into it, wrestling on the floor of the studio, their flowers intertwining in all these luminous ways. But eventually the artist ends up pushing things too far, when he suggests that maybe, just maybe, it would be cool if the two of them had sex with each other while he filmed it. His colleague, though, immediately rejects this idea. He won't do it. And though they try to resume their non-sexual flower touching, the chemistry is ruined, and everything is awkward and they just quit. As the artist, though, is apologizing to Inhi afterwards, Inhi tells him that it's okay, that she was totally willing to have gone along with it. Did you fancy that kid? No, it was the flowers. The flowers? I've never wanted it so much before. It was the flowers on his body, that's all. I couldn't help myself. If I painted flowers on myself, would you do it then? She turned around and stared back at him, and he understood her gaze to be one of complicity. And I could film it? She laughed, faintly, as if there were nothing she wouldn't do, as if limits and boundaries no longer held any meaning for her, or else as if in quiet mockery. What this leads to, then, of course, is a climax where he really does it, where he bangs in he with flowers painted across their bodies while the camera rolls, and it is marvelous, for him at least. He paints their bodies so that the different thrusts he does as part of the sex act cause the opening and closing of certain flowers on her body. The mark is right there in front of him, the petals of his paunch closing around it. And this is it. This is everything he's ever dreamed of. He's got it. He's got it. But once you've got it, you can never keep it, can you? After they complete their work, they take a nap. When the artist wakes up from that nap, he walks out, naked of course, into Inhi's kitchen to discover Inhi's sister, his wife, sitting at the kitchen table, and she's enraged, not because she caught her husband cheating on her, but because she thinks her husband has abused the feeble-mindedness of her sister, that her sister's grasp on sanity has undoubtedly been ruined by all this, that he too has gone insane, and that they both need to be committed to an asylum. She's called the men in white coats, she says, who then promptly burst through the door. Panic ensues, and to escape his humiliation, the artist actually tries to do the artistic thing and throw himself off in his apartment's balcony. But just at the last moment, before he goes over the edge, he catches in his still naked, still floral body out of the corner of his eye, hesitates, and is captured. So ends the Mongolian Mark, the story of a jerk-off of a man who had a pretty cool dream one time, lived it, and then was destroyed by it. We learn in the following section that this is it for him and his life, for the most part. Once they let him out of the asylum, because he's not really crazy, he's just an artist, he never comes back to his family. He never sees his son again. He never sees his wife again. He never even divorces his wife. He just disappears into the underground like a criminal. And since all of his money comes from his wife, you know he's not living well in the underground. He's become a vagabond, a drifter, a man on the run who, we are told, calls begging to talk to his son once from a payphone, is refused, and then never calls again. But anyway, the final section. I'm going to talk much less about the final section than the other two. First, I've been talking about this book for far too long already. I need to wrap things up. People need to go on with their lives. But also, the third part lends itself the least well to me sitting here and giddily describing its atrocities. It's the most subtle and emotional of the three parts. It takes place at least a couple years after the catastrophe of the Mongolian mark, 
and it's about Inhi's sister going to visit Inhi at this asylum on the edge of the city. By this point, Inhi has decided that she's no longer a human being, but a tree. Trees don't need food. She's taken to starving herself to death. There's hardly anything left of her. She barely has the strength to speak. To keep her alive, the doctors have been force-feeding her with tubes, like a prisoner at Guantanamo, but even now this is failing. And so the section becomes about Inhi's sister coming to terms with all of this, with what is to be done with Inhi, with what has been done to Inhi, and the immensity of feelings that course through all of this, all the feelings of guilt, of powerlessness, of sympathy, of anger and regret, are all best felt for one's own, without any of the opinions of a blabbermouth like me getting in the way. There's so much pain in that section, so much confusion, so much quiet bewilderment, so much clinical barbarity as her doctors try so hard to jam a tube down her clenched throat that she begins spewing blood from her mouth like a fountain. But why? Why all this suffering inflicted on one woman just because she wanted to stop eating meat? Why all this brutality and torture and violence and punishment? The first answer is obviously misogyny. The vegetarian is a primal scream of rage directed at the patriarchy, at the way that women aren't allowed to control their own lives. And it does this by simultaneously showing us the mechanisms of that control in their rawest and most blatant manifestations, and then making those monstrous acts of oppression into something that feels frankly banal. Inhi's father is jamming meat into her mouth while she begs him to stop, and everyone stands around like a crowd of people in a grocery store, seeing someone yell at their kid. I mean, I would never do that, but, like, we don't have, like, the full story, so, like, I'm just gonna stare at the ground, and, uh, maybe it'll go away. And to be frank, I found that really indicting. Since reading The Vegetarian, I've spent a lot of time thinking long and hard and critically about the ways in which I treat the women in my own life, the ways in which I maybe don't respect the right to self-determination and self-actualization, the right to agency itself. But I don't think the book intellectually ends there. The Vegetarian is about more than just the miserable place of women in the world. There's another sinister force at play here, maybe an even more sinister force. Maybe even a sinister force that you could argue is one of the root dynamos that drives our misogyny. The demand for conformity. Korea is a hyperconformist society. That becomes apparent to you even as a tourist. The metaphor my friends who spent years living and working in Korea used to explain to me was that Korea was America if the 1950s had never ended. All of those values of the 50s, the work ethic, the deference to authority, the moral conservatism, the unwavering belief that all one needs in life to be happy is a massive pile of consumer goods, the unbending determination that everyone everywhere should think and act exactly like you do, all persist there with little in the way of abatement or moderation. During my chats with her, Himong told me that if she wore a shirt that people deemed to be too youthful, Strangers would not hesitate to stop her on the street and tell her, don't you think that makes you look a little young? But Korean folk are not alone in that compulsion. We're all conformists. We all hate people who are different than us. Just some of us have been restrained by custom or law from acting on that hatred. I think this stems from the fact that it is ultimately impossible to know if you're living your life correctly. If you believe the right things, if you have the right values, if you've made the right choices. And so doubt sets in. Profound, horrifying, crippling doubt. What if having a family was a mistake? What if not having children was a mistake? What if your career was a mistake? What if capitalism was a mistake? What if communism was a mistake? Feminism a mistake? The patriarchy a mistake? If God is a lie and all the things you denied yourself are permitted? If God is real after all and everything you've been doing is prohibited? 
This fear that one is living wrongly is like the fear of death to my mind. There is nothing one can do to escape the inevitability of death. All one can do is distract oneself so that we forget that inevitability. All one can do to escape the fear that they've chosen the wrong way to live is to remove from the world anything that might remind them that they could possibly be wrong. In he must be crushed because by making one single choice for herself, by following one single impulse unique to herself, by making one deviation, she calls into question the entirety of everything. No one can be allowed to call into question the entirety of everything. They must be broken or they must be expelled. And even if you're not someone who feels suicidally compelled to rebel against the mechanisms of that conformity, your life is still ruined by it. It still constricts your every breath. There's parts of the third section in the hospital where Inhi's sister talks about how everything she's ever done in her life has been to fulfill the desires or avoid the displeasures of others. Not only does the societal demand for conformity tell us what we can't have, it tells us what we must want to have. You have to want a family, you have to want kids, you have to want a prosperous career or productivity or success or to live a life of socialist virtue, regardless of whether or not we really want to do those things or care about those things. And this leads us to a really interesting thing that Himang said to me when we were discussing the book. She said that to her mind, the real hero of the book, or well, the character she most admired in the book, was the artist. The artist, I asked her? The artist? The guy who sexually exploited a woman with a certain quantity of mental illness? Abandoned his family? Neglected his child? Yes, she said. He's the only person in the book that got what he really wanted. And you know what? She has a point. He wanted to bang the Mongolian mark. And he banged the Mongolian mark. It cost him his family. It required breaking a whole lot of perfectly reasonable moral prohibitions. But he got it. He alone, if only in that one way, if only for one instant, was fulfilled. There's a certain heroism to that. Not good heroism. Not morally upright heroism. But this sort of monstrous heroism that draws us to admire antiheroes or villains, that makes us however begrudgingly yearn to be like Darth Vader or Scarface or that guy from the Wolf of Wall Street. What they want is evil. What they are is evil. But in our hearts, we want the same things that they want. The only difference is that they're brave enough to cross the lines to get it, while we're cowards bound by the chains of conformity and will never in our entire lives get what we truly want. The omnipresence of that demand to conformity, the way it colors so very much of what we do and how we treat each other, I don't think was ever clear to me till I read The Vegetarian. There is something about the novel's strangeness, its hollowed-out language, its fundamental Koreanness that puts this revelation into stark relief. It works like satire. Satire doesn't invent anything. It just takes that which already exists and heightens it so we can see the insanity or ridiculousness or whatever of the way our society already exists. Likewise, the vegetarian, both because of its deliberate style and its cultural milieu, takes all these societal impulses, these mechanisms of misogynistic and conformist oppression, as it were, and makes them leap out at us, makes them shine in your face like the blinding light of Christ. And this is why reading across cultures is so important. Our nearness to ourselves prevents us from seeing ourselves. It is often only when our gaze is moved from our navel to some other person, to some other society, that we can begin to see things clearly. As you read some writer trying to articulate all the personal and societal horrors of existing in their world, suddenly you begin to see all the horrors of existing in your world. 
by taking us deep into the heart of a series of Korean misogynistic and conformist nightmares. The vegetarian forces us to confront all the ways in which we are the same as these people, doing the same things towards the same ends. Maybe more subtly, maybe more gently, but the same. Forcing women to do what we want them to do, forcing others to live their lives exactly how we live our own. And it's only by realizing all the ways that you're a monster that you can ever hope to stop being a monster. Thank you. This has been episode two of The Joy of Serious Literature. I have been your amateur literary critic, Bryant Davis. I hope you've enjoyed what I've had to say about Hong Kong's The Vegetarian, which was published in the United States by Hogarth Books and is available at fine bookstores everywhere, maybe. Pick up a copy. It's less than 200 pages. You can read it in a couple days. I'd also like to offer special thanks to Kim Hee Ma for all the help she gave with contextualizing this novel and with understanding this novel. Join us again next time when we'll be continuing our short tour of East Asia by stopping off to discuss, at much shorter length, God willing, the Chinese short story The Real Story of Ah Q by Lu Shun, which is mostly about a drunken Chinese moron bumbling about in turn of the 20th century China. Not only is the story really hilarious, it's about as formative to modern Chinese literature as Huckleberry Finn is to modern American literature. Hope to see you there. Or talk to you there. Or talk at you there. Whatever. Godspeed. Before my wife turned vegetarian, before my la 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 vocal exercises, how do you see me? I can't remember, I can't remember, I can't remember, I can't remember when you saw me.